Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while, saying, and while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As we consider the church in the new year, maybe if we go back to the beginning of the church and look at what Christ intended for that church, then maybe from that we can glean what God also intends for our church in the new year. And so as we look at this passage in the book of Acts, that's exactly what we find. We're going to find five characteristics of that new church. But in doing so, we're also going to recognize that these are five characteristics that we want to emulate in our church as we go into this new year. Well, the first characteristic that we see in this passage is that Christ intended for his church to be an enlightened church. Notice in the first three verses what it says. It says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until... The day when he was taken up. Now, what that is referring to is the author of the book of Acts is Luke. And what Luke is doing is he's referring to his other book that he already wrote. And he wrote these books for this person named Theophilus, which as best we can tell was a Roman leader of some sort. And what Luke is doing is he's researching the life of Christ and then the history of the early church for this individual and giving him a detailed account of the things that happened. And so that's what the Gospel of Luke is. He's giving a detailed, accurate understanding of the life of Christ. At the beginning of the book of Acts, he says that former book that I wrote ended with Christ being taken away from his disciples, being caught up into the heavens. In the book of Acts, he's picking up where he left off and he's continuing to follow the ministry of Christ carried out through his apostles in this new thing called the church. But by doing that, as we look at the passage, it says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first point that I'd like to, the first characteristic I'd like to draw out of these verses is the fact that it focuses on a couple different things. It focuses on the fact that Christ was giving his apostles commands, teachings in the, and he's referring back to the gospel of Luke. For three and a half years, Christ had spent time with his disciples, teaching them, training them, enlightening them, teaching them about the kingdom of God and the things that were going to take place. And what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He was enlightening them. And then it says he gave them those commands during that time. And then it goes on to say that 
Christ died on a cross. He rose again from the dead. And when He rose again from the dead, He was still on the earth for 40 days before He ascended up into heaven. And He says during those 40 days, He appeared to them at different times and He continued to teach them about the kingdom of God. In fact, so much so that that was really what was on their mind, which was often on the disciples' mind. When He tells them about this promise of the Father, this promised Holy Spirit that was going to come, they immediately connected that back to the kingdom. If the promise of the Holy Spirit is coming very soon, they're thinking the promise of the kingdom must be coming very soon too. So they ask him, so are you going to set up your kingdom now? While he was still alive, they would ask him that repeatedly. Can we be the, the, the highest in your kingdom? Can we sit on your right, on your left? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Are you going to set up your kingdom now? And he always told them, same thing, it's none of your business. And then told them what he expected them to do. But at this time, they're saying it again. Now, after you died and rose again, we saw how you needed to do that. But now are you going to set up the kingdom? And he says, same thing, it's none of your business. It's not for you to know. But it's natural for them to think that because the promises in the Old Testament that pointed toward the kingdom said that one day this kingdom is going to come and it's going to be a different kingdom because God's going to write His rules and His laws on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. And so, and so the promise of the Holy Spirit was connected to the coming of the kingdom. And they did not recognize at that time that we'd get kind of the foretaste of it, a down payment of it in the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the full kingdom wouldn't come until later. But the point is, Jesus has spent all this time that Luke recorded teaching His disciples, training His disciples, enlightening them, so that they could be the ones that would teach and train after He's gone. He promised them that this Holy Spirit was going to come, that was going to illumine them, that was going to give them a better understanding and a better ability to teach the things that He was training them. The time that He spent with them in those 40 days, He was continuing to teach them about His kingdom. He wanted His church, as it was go forward from here, He wanted His church to be an enlightened church and an understanding church. The things that we learn are things about God and God's will in our lives and God's kingdom and His working in this world. And He wants us to be informed about those. I mean, look at the size of the book. He's given us a pretty good size resource. And this is God's effort to reveal to us the things about Himself and His will in this world. And so there to be an enlightened church, it wouldn't stop there. The disciples weren't the only ones that Jesus wanted to be knowledgeable, to be taught. It continued in the church. In fact, when we get to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, he's talking about the gifts that he's given to the church. He gave the apostles and the prophets. And we notice that the Bible repeatedly points to those as foundational gifts. That he built his church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But then it goes on from there. As we leave the foundation, it says the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. And the word shepherds is just one of the five Greek words that point to the office of pastor. And so he's saying we've given us leadership to the church, uh, apostles and prophets to begin with, evangelists, which were like missionaries, and then pastor teachers. And he says we've put these, God put these in place within the church for a purpose. And what was that purpose? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That word saints just means a Christian, means a believer. They're not some special superhero category of Christians. They're just your average believer. People that have been sanctified to Jesus Christ. The pastors and teachers and the leadership of the church is put there to teach, to equip, to build up, so that then every Christian can be involved in carrying out the work of the ministry. 
for the building up of the body of Christ. And he says there's a goal in that. The goal is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so you see the point that he's making is that God's will for his church and the reason that he put certain gifts within his church is so that his children would grow up to be mature in their understanding of God so that they would not be tossed to and fro by every new idea that comes down the pike, but we would be solid in our understanding and unified in our faith before God and we would have this mature relationship with him. You know, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, he does the same thing. He writes to those people and says, By this time that I'm writing to you right now, you all should be teachers. You should have gained enough knowledge, enough learning that you should all be able to teach. But instead, I'm having to come back and remind you of the ABCs of the Christian faith because you haven't grown like you should. You still need milk and you should be on to solid food. You should be on to the meat of the Word of God by now, but you're still having milk. That's exactly what Jesus was doing with his disciples. That's exactly his intention for the church as it went on, is that it would be an enlightened church, an educated church in the things of God, and that they would grow on to maturity, not subject, not being vulnerable to false teachings that would come around all the time. We would be an enlightened church. You know what, that gives me a little bit of a measurement. I can look at my life right now and say, what do I know about God right now at the end of this year? that maybe I didn't know or didn't know as well last year? Am I growing in my understanding? Am I more enlightened now than I was a year ago? Because that's God's will for my life. That's God's will for His church, and I'm a part of this church. The church doesn't get enlightened without the individuals in the church getting enlightened. And so I look at it and say, am I growing in my understanding of God? Am I getting deeper? Am I, am I knowing Him better as I progress along? In my life. Well, not only did he want his church to be an enlightened church, he also wanted it to be an emboldened church. An emboldened church. Now, the reason that I say that is because of what happens with the apostles at the end of the book of Luke and right here in this passage. Because it it refers to it here, but kind of points back also. It says in verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days. Jesus presented himself alive to them, and it says he, he did more than that. He offered many convincing proofs. He had to prove to them that he's risen again from the dead. Now, do you remember back in his earthly ministry when he's with his disciples, and he told his disciples on a number of occasions, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to put me to death. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Every time he did that, boom, right over the disciples' head. They completely missed it. So, when Jesus is finally taken from them, and he's put to death, they're distraught. Do you remember what happened to them? They, they were in hiding in an upper room because they were afraid to go out after Christ was taken and crucified. Because they're afraid that they might meet the same end, since they're one of his followers. So they're, they're afraid, frightened, hiding in an upper room. Jesus, when he meets two of them on the road to Emmaus, they express confusion. They said, we, we followed this guy for three years. We thought he was the guy. And now he's dead. And so they're confused. Guys like Peter, James, John, what did they do? You know what? Going back to my old job. Going back to fishing. And they went back to fishing. They weren't sure. You know, Jesus had told them, you're going to be my witnesses. But even before, they went back to fishing. They're confused. They're scared. They're hiding. They're so much so that when the women went to the tomb 
And they saw that Jesus was risen again from the dead, and they came back and told the rest of the apostles. It said, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And so, you know, it's hard to imagine that this group of frightened, hiding, going back to their old life group of people is going to be the people that's going to change the world. But they are. But they need something first. They need some emboldening. They need some, they need the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus provides for them. It says that He provided, He appeared to them, and He provided many proofs. Well, if we look back at Luke chapter 24, we'll see just a little bit of it. In Luke chapter 24, it says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. These are the two that were walking along the road on the way to Emmaus. And Jesus came to them and joined Himself with them and asked them what they were talking about. And they asked Him, Are you a stranger here? And they told Him about Christ and His death. And that now some ladies have said that they've seen Him alive. And so they don't know what to make of it. And this is when Jesus corrects them. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And being with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So Jesus proved to them, first of all, from the Word of God. He showed them how in the Old Testament it prophesied of all these things and it gave us images of all these things that Christ was to fulfill. And He says, you're slow to believe. This absolutely had to happen to the Christ. It was foretold long before. You should have been ready. You should have known. But then not only that, as we went on, it says as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them. Now this is, this is no longer out on the road to Emmaus. This is back at the upper room. And so when they get back at the upper room there, Jesus appears to them again and He comes and stands among them. And they're startled and they're frightened. Even though they see Him, what do they think it is? They think it's a, they think it's a ghost. They think it's a spirit. So even seeing Him risen again from the dead, they're not willing to accept that He has actually risen from the dead. They're more inclined to believe that it's a spirit or a ghost. And so Jesus does some things. He says, look, see it's me. Shows Him his, the holes in His hands, His feet, His side. In fact, He would even tell Thomas. Remember Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I can stick my fingers in the holes in His hands and put my fist in His side. And Jesus said, Thomas, go ahead. It's recorded in the Gospel of John. Stick your fingers right in there. Stick your fist right here. Thomas didn't need to. He fell down on his knees and said, My Lord and my God. So Jesus says, Look, it's, it's me. And then he tells him, Touch me. You can feel me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. Come and touch me. And then he offers him one more proof as well. He tells him, uh, Give me something to eat and I'll eat it in front of you. And so they give him a piece of boiled fish and he eats the fish in front of them. And finally, after all that proof, then finally they're convinced that he's risen again from the dead. That's the, that's the amazing thing. These people are hiding in a room, afraid to show their face. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, this same group of men will be referred to as the men who have turned this world upside down. This group of men that was hiding will turn the world upside down. But before that can happen, they need to be emboldened. They need, to, they need it proved to them. They need to know for certain that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And so Jesus comes before them and He gives them the proof. He gives them the evidence that, look, this is Me. I'm risen from the dead. See the holes. Feel Me. Let Me eat something. The Old Testament predicted this would happen. You should have been ready. Finally, 
Now they get a hold of it. Now they're emboldened. Now they know that this is true. They're not wondering anymore what happened to the Christ or what this is all about. Now they know. And you know what? God accomplishes the same thing for us in this. Because He gave us first-hand eyewitness accounts of all these things that happened. And I'm convinced, if you look at this for the historical evidence, it cannot be false. My faith is continually emboldened because of these facts. Because I look at it and say, we got 11 people, 11 people that were hiding, and then they came out and boldly proclaimed the resurrection of the dead. Not only did they boldly proclaim the resurrection of the dead, but think about it, if it's not true, they made it up. So they're boldly proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, and they're saying, we saw him with our own eyes, we talked to him, they wrote down these accounts. If it is not true, they're the ones that made it up. And then they're faced with opposition. They weren't going around holding big tent meetings and taking offerings in five-gallon buckets. They were being hunted. They were being pursued. And all 11, and then we'll throw the Apostle Paul in there with them, and he'll be 12. And all 12 of them would end up tortured, and 11 out of the 12 die, be put to death because of one thing. Be put to death because of teaching the resurrection. That was the central point. They would not stop teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All 12 of them would be put to death, or John would be tortured and then exiled, but they would be put to death for teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I look at that and I say, and countless other people with me, what are the chances that they would be willing to die for a lie that they made up and that was bringing them no benefit, was bringing them only harm, if it's not true, was bringing them only harm and would bring them to be put to death, and all they have to say is, we made it up, and they will be let free. What are the chances that you could find one person that would die for that lie that they themselves made up? <coughs> to think that 11, 12 of them would all go to the grave, all endure torturing for something that they had made up? It's just not possible. You can't find that within human nature. People will die for something that they're deluded into thinking is true, but is false. But people don't die for things that they know is false, that they made up themselves. And so, you know what? Our faith, our faith is emboldened the same way the apostles' faith was emboldened. Jesus Christ appeared to the apostles. He showed them the proof. He showed them His flesh. He showed them the holes in His hands and His side. And the same things are showed to us through the eyes of those apostles. And these people were people that were men of strong integrity and preached a message of strong integrity and honesty. And these people would go to their grave for that one truth that Jesus rose again from the dead. When the Bible talks about hope being something that we have, uh, hope in the Bible is not, uh, I hope it'll happen, maybe it'll happen. Hope is a confident expectation. We know that it's going to happen. We're not hoping these things are true. We know these things are true. In that, our faith is emboldened. And God wants us to be emboldened as a church coming into this new year. Well, not only that, but He also wants us to be empowered. In this passage, there's actually just two commands. One of them is wait, and the other one is go. <laughs> he says, wait here until you receive the gift of the Father, and they're sequential. And then after that, He says, you're going to be My witnesses. And so for them to be His witnesses, first they have to be empowered. They're going to need the Holy Spirit to come upon them and empower them. And the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and He's been indwelling in believers ever since. Well, as we look back at John chapter 14, we see what Jesus is referring to when He said He gave them a promise 
about them being baptized with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so he promises them this, this helper, this Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, that will come and indwell us and actually be in us. And that's what happens. You know, earlier I talked about my testimony of, you know what, I was blinded. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. All of a sudden I could see it. Why? Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, working in my heart, causing that regeneration. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26 says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I love that, because that last part of the passage, and bring to remembrance all the things that I've said to you, that's what gives us the Gospels. And so the Holy Spirit, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these guys would remember the things that Christ taught them, and would produce the Gospels for us. In John chapter 16, it goes on to tell about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Christ here, I think the advantage that he's pointing to is that Christ would be uh, in one place at a time. He's bound to a physical body at this point. But the Holy Spirit can be everywhere all the time. And so he can be with uh, each of them, even as they separate and go their different ways. And then lastly, in John chapter 16, uh, as he continued the promise, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. That would be the epistles. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things to come. That would be the book of Revelation. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus Christ in his ministry had given this promise. He said, you, you aren't even able to, to grasp everything that I'm trying to give you right now. He said, but that's okay. Because when I leave, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to be in you. And he's the spirit of truth and he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to teach you about things to come. And he's going to, he was going to empower them for the ministry that Christ had for them to do. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. He says, wait here in Jerusalem. And they wait. And when that Holy Spirit comes with the visible signs, the tongues of fire and, and people speaking in different languages and the mighty wind through the temple, and the Holy Spirit shows himself in that way, then boom, they get the power of God and the ministry begins. And all of a sudden you see the church start to grow by the thousands. Now if you think about it, if Jesus Christ didn't really rise from the dead, where would be the hardest place in the world to start a church? It would be in Jerusalem. Because they would know there was no resurrection of the dead. But the church in Jerusalem starts to grow by the thousands once the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the apostles' ministry. God wants the same thing for our church. He wants it to not, not that we're going to have a Pentecost all over again, or maybe all the visible signs and things like that, which were at that first inauguration of it, but He wants us to be walking in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, depending upon the Holy Spirit to empower our ministries. He equips us to go out and accomplish what He wants us to accomplish. Lastly, also we see that he entrusted, this church was entrusted. He entrusted them with a, with a mission, with what he wanted to accomplish. 
It says that He tells them, wait here for now, but then the next command is, you're going to be My witnesses. You'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, which would be the surrounding area outside of Jerusalem. Kind of like the county that Jerusalem's in or the state that Jerusalem's in. He says, but then you're going to go on from there. Uh, all Judea. You're going to go up into Samaria. Samaria was the region north of Judea. And it was a mixed group of people. It was Jews and Gentiles mixed. And he says, you're going to reach out to the Samaritans. And then you're going to go from there to the uttermost parts of the world, to the whole Gentile world that's out there. And so he entrusts them with the ministry that he has, that he wants to be fulfilled through his church. And that comes all the way down to our day and age. That's why, you know what, we have ministries that we strive to reach our our community, to reach our Jerusalem, our our city. And we try to expand out from that. And we've added the, the radio ministry to try to get a little bit broader message out. And we try to expand out from that even in our own nation. We, we support like Teens for Christ and Chad ministering to teenagers down around Hudson and the city area of the cities. And that ministry actually expands out all nationwide with their Bible quizzing and stuff. And then we also support missions. And we got to make our Ukraine trip this last year and be involved in training leaders and churches in Ukraine. And we support missionaries. We've supported missionaries in the Philippines as Lynn Stapleton just has ended her ministry for years. Her and her husband Russ in the seminary in the Philippines. We've supported, I think the Burks were down in Ecuador. We support people in South America right now. We Brazil. The Surrettes are in Brazil. And we support different missionaries in different spots of the world to try to get the, the church to grow throughout the world. Still trying to fulfill the same mission that he entrusted those first disciples. And when you think about it, we're sending out our missionaries from a place that's very far from where it all began. We're a long ways from Jerusalem. And so that mission had to get here before we started sending them anywhere else. And so, but Christ entrusted them with that. And uh, We look in the, in the Gospel of Luke. He told them this is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. In the Gospel of Matthew, He told them all authority in heaven and earth is given unto Me. He tells them, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In Mark, He'd tell them that the Gospel needed to be preached to every creature. The Gospel needed to be preached through all of creation. And Peter in his epistle would talk, would tell the people that he was writing to that we need to always be ready. We need to sanctify Christ in our hearts and always be ready to explain to people the hope that lies within us. You see, Christ entrusted that early church with his mission that he wanted for them, and he's done the same with us. That has come down to us. The baton is in our hands, and he's entrusted that same mission to us. Well, lastly, the early church was also an encouraged church. Because it ends with this. The, the, the people are all standing there. The disciples are standing there. And they watch Christ go up into the clouds and disappear. And then an angel comes and says, Why are you guys all standing there staring up into space? They're continuing to stare up at the sky even though Christ is already gone. But he ends with this word of encouragement. In the same way that you've seen him leave, he's going to come back. And that again ties back to a promise that Jesus had given His disciples when He was telling them that He was going away. He also told them, don't worry, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back for you. And they get a little bit confused about that. And how, how, how will we know where you're going? How will we know the way? And Jesus tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by Me. 
So he leaves with them. The last thing in this passage that's left with them is encouragement. Encouragement that as they carry out this mission that they're entrusted with, the encouragement of his return. Well, we see the church as it just got its new beginning, as it was a brand new entity. We see that Christ had the desire for that church to be an enlightened church. He'd spent three and a half years already training the leadership, and he wanted that leadership to continue to train the people. It was he had given them his commands and his teaching, continued even during that 40 days to give them the teaching of the kingdom. He wanted them to be an enlightened church. He wanted them to be an emboldened church, so he gave them the proof that they needed that what they were trusting in was real and it was true, so much so that it would shape and cost them their lives. Uh, he also wanted them to be an empowered church. And so he gave them the Holy Spirit. He wanted them to be an entrusted church. That he, would, he entrusted this mission of spreading the gospel throughout the world. And he wanted them to be, as they were doing that, he wanted them to continually be encouraged and looking forward to his return. You know, if that describes us in the coming year, we can't help to but be a vibrant church of Jesus Christ.